now with uh, connected television, um, you know, there's no need for Nielsen anymore. That's Ali Ha'eri, Vice President of Marketing at Mountain, our sponsor on this episode of the Digiday podcast. Later in the show, Custom talks with Ali about the changing relationships between brand and performance teams as TV advertising gets connected. Another episode of the Digiday Podcast. I'm Kaylee Barber, senior reporter at Digiday. And I'm Tim Peterson, senior media editor at Digiday. Awesome. So Tim, you had the conversation this week. You spoke with Cheryl L. Bedford, who's the executive director of Women of Color Unite. Um, and that's a nonprofit organization that supports women of color in the entertainment industry. Um, and she's also a film producer, so she has a pretty good kind of um, position in the industry as well. Um, but I'm curious, I guess, did your conversation um, get into at all like when women of color unite originated and um how it kind of came to be yeah cheryl talks about that it basically started with a party um effectively that she put together to bring women of color and the entertainment industry together in uh, february of 2018 and women of color unite was actually the words that were on the invitation that then led to the formation of the nonprofit. Um, and then it also um, spawned um, what's called the JTC list, which is this database um, for women of color in the entertainment industry to add their names to and, you know, what they do, whether they're, um, you know, editors, cinematographers, line producers. Um, and that database has actually grown to, I believe she said, more than 4,500 women at this point. And so it basically um, is a good rebuttal to any time you have executives say, well, you know, we can't find women of color to hire. Um, there's mm-hmm. 4,500 in this database that the organization has. Oh, awesome. And so this kind of also uh, maybe helps tie into another initiative that Women of Color Unite um, spearheaded, I think it was last summer, uh, the hashtag start with eight. Could you explain a little bit about what that is and um you know, why that initiative got started last summer? Yeah, hashtag start with eight. It's actually pretty remarkable because it's a pretty simple idea that's proven to be really effective. And the the notion is to start with eight um, means start with um, eight women of color. And what it is, is they've asked, um, you know, established people in the entertainment industry, executives from TV networks and streaming services, um, producers, screenwriters, agents to just meet with eight women of color and to do one substantive thing to support them, such as read their script, uh, introduce them to someone else. Um, and so it doesn't, it's not like this, you know, massive undertaking or this massive commitment from the people. It's just a matter of getting these women of color in the room. Mm -hmm. And Cheryl, that, you know, ultimately that's what it comes down to. And what a lot of their work is, is just, getting these women in the room and going back to the JTC list, um, a lot of what they're doing with that database is using it as uh, an insights tool to figure out like, what is it that's keeping of women out of the room? And so, um, and she really, you know, gets into this in the conversation. Like one of the challenges is just, you know, uh, joining industry unions and guilds and just how that barrier is really, um, 
putting an, an obstacle in front of women of color in the entertainment industry. Got it. Awesome. Well, it sounds like there's been some really cool work that they've done. Um, I'm excited to hear this conversation with Cheryl, so I'll let you take it away. Cool. Thanks, Kayla. Thanks, Tim. Cheryl L. Bedford, thanks for joining us on the Digital Day podcast. Welcome. Uh, thank you so much for having me. You've always been a pleasure to work with. So, you know, here I am. Yeah, it's good to talk to you again. So, and I kind of want to start with that. So the first time we spoke was June of last year after the killing of George Floyd and all of the focus on diversity, equity, inclusion, both in Hollywood and the entertainment industry and across all industries and seemingly all walks of life as well. And what stood out to me about Women of Color Unite and the work that you all are doing is hashtag start with eight Hollywood, which um, you're doing with the bitch pack. And it feels like that's one of the unfortunately few examples of an initiative to address the DNI shortcomings in the entertainment industry, in any industry, really, that's actually gained traction. You are so actually, I'll, I'll ask you, can you kind of um, explain what hashtag start with eight Hollywood is and how it came about? Sure. So, uh, Hashtag start with eight Hollywood is no longer, it's actually hashtag start with eight. We are no longer doing it with bitch pack. That's a really long story, which I will not get into at this point in time. Uh, so now it's hashtag start with eight. And one of the reasons was because when we went to trademark it, <laughs> the Hollywood Chamber of Commerce has Hollywood on lockdown. So we had mm. to do hashtag start with eight. And then, and now because we also added Canada and the UK, it's hashtag start with a Hollywood edition, Canadian edition, and UK edition. Now, the reason that it uh, came originally came about was that um, uh, uh, Bitchback had tried it a couple of times before, it didn't work. But then during the rebellion and pandemic of last summer, uh, they got the first um, mentor, Cassie and Elways, and it blew up. And Women of Color Unite, we, we are the actual organization. So we had the infrastructure to be able to do it, right? And that's what ended up happening. And then we did, uh, we did, two rounds of it. And honestly, it's the Volunteers of Women of Color Unite um, that really turned it into a program. It was really Manon de Reaper. So Manon, who is our business development strategist, has a background in criminology and psychology. Uh, she's a screenwriter. Uh, but because of that background, she put together the forms and so forth and so on. Um, Shelby Covant helped her um, she was the uh, program manager who's no longer with us. Uh, Manon was the program director. And so it, it became an actual thing. Like it became the largest diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility program in the history of Hollywood. Uh, and obviously because that there was a need for it. And actually I would say in the entertainment industry, right? And there was this need for it, which was really matching um, mentors and um, 
people in the industry, right? Because I think that a lot of people realized, for, maybe even for the first time, even though we've been through the civil rights movement and the women's movement, that I think with social media and being able to record things on your phone, that it was something people could actually see, right? Now, here's what I will say. I think that a lot of Black Americans, we've always known this history, right? A lot of us have had, I've had a relative who was driving a very fancy car, got pulled over, and the next thing we were told is they committed suicide, and I'm doing air quotes, in jail. We all have those stories, but nobody believed us. And it really wasn't until social media where people could actually see it. And not just once like with the Rodney King uh, uh, beating, but over and over and over again. And I think that it finally dawned on a lot of people about what we call, you know, the, 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 they call it white privilege. Actually, we're sort of changing the terms and it's really not the privilege. It's really the power of whiteness, right? That you can get pulled over for speeding and drive away hmm. as opposed to ending up deceased. And so I think that in the middle of a pandemic when everybody was home, that we were all consuming a lot of social media that it really began to be a reckoning. And I think that a lot of people in the industry realized that they wanted to do something. It's what we call exclusion by familiarity. Remember that term? I remember using it the first time with you. And it's the idea of, it, you know, it, it, originally I always said that it was the idea of, I don't know any, don't go to school with any, don't live near any, don't play golf with any, dot, dot, dot. Meaning, mm what we call the global majority yet marginalized in this country. But I think it even goes further than that. And I was thinking about what Steven Spielberg said about what's the name, Tre uh, Tre oh, um, Colin Trevorrow. Thank you. He was the Sundance, I think the same year Avery DuVernay was. And I've been thinking about his comment. And he said that Colin reminded him of himself. That's also exclusion by familiarity, right? Because, and it reminded me of something that happened to me when I was an intern at Guiding Light years and years and years ago, when I was at NYU. Um, and it was me, and then there was another intern, uh, young white female, blonde hair, blue eyes, and they were going out on remote. And I remember asking them if I could go, and they're like, well, Jennifer asked us first. And then, but there was the next sentence, which was, and she reminds us of our little sister. Mm. And then I thought about, and that was in 1987. And then I remembered what Steven Spielberg said by Colin, that exclusion by familiarity also means you don't remind me of myself, anybody in my family, mm. any of my friends. So it actually goes beyond that, where people see people in this industry coming up and because they don't quote unquote remind them of themselves they're actually pushed to the margins first two rounds because we were in the middle of a pandemic and the rebellion was on everybody's mind it was much easier to get mentors this last round 
it was not as easy at all. Hmm. And I think that two things happened. Number one, it was a year later. And number two, people were like, I don't want to hug. I don't want to Zoom. I want to hug. And people wanted to get back to their real life. I think those two things. But the interesting thing was that it actually mattered more. And here's why. Every study will tell you, after you do diversity, equity, inclusion, accessibility training, there is a 100% backlash. Now, it doesn't mean that everybody has a backlash to it. What it means is that at least one or two people, there is a backlash. So there's a 100% backlash. And we started seeing that as running Women of Color Unite. I mean, we do a lot of other things besides start with eight. And one of the things that I started hearing, and not actually hearing, getting emails about, were my members, specifically Black women, who were being laid off, fired, and I was like, ah, here comes the backlash. And it was so much harder this round to get the mentors. And I actually said to you, if I, and here's the other thing, nobody has funded us. So we got a $25,000 grant from the city of Los Angeles for the second round. This round? Even doing three countries, the BFI gave us a grant of 3,000 pounds, which is $4,000. That's it. That's it. And so when it comes to help paying people, you know, giving them something for all the work that they're doing, I'm using part of our SBA loan. I'm using the money that we do as uh, as a diversity firm, which means I'm working for that money. And you asked me, very importantly, uh, the last time we talked, what do I, what would I see? What, like, what in, in a perfect world? In a perfect world for me, one of the things would be running that program year round. Now, just imagine that every time somebody got hit that intersectionality, racism, sexism, colorism, sizeism, ageism, ableism, homophobia, each point in their career that they got a champion now imagine if we could do that right so i just it it's very interesting to me to as a daughter of an activist um you know to do this i had to tell people all the time i've always wanted to be a producer not producer right like that that's that's my dream i've been able to do it uh, but I am an activist by DNA. Hmm. So all I did was combined everything my family had ever taught me, all the lessons that I had learned, all the stories I had ever listened to, including my mother's two oldest. So the, my mother is, uh, was the middle child. She was the oldest girl and the middle child. So she had two older brothers, two younger sisters. And she and her two older brothers uh, were in the civil rights movement. They were arrested. My grandparents put up their house to get their sons out of jail. Mm -hmm. Uh, My uncle Thomas, who is a retired judge in Baltimore, Maryland, helped to pass the Americans with Disabilities Act. His youngest son, my cousin, is disabled. These are all the things and lessons that I grew up listening to. These are all the stories that I grew up listening to. I, I guess I was. it was always going to happen. And the other thing is being that person that nobody saw in themselves. Uh, I have always fought against racism, sexism, all of those things. I've been fired 
I've been attacked on set, uh, you know, but I don't know another way to be. Mm-hmm. So for anyone who's not you know, familiar with hashtag start with eight, um, it's a program started last year and is basically a very simple concept and that proved pretty effective. Um, a lot of times, as you were mentioning, the Steven Spielberg example with Colin Trevorrow and the exclusion by familiarity, a lot of times when people are called out for falling short on diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility, their response is, well, like, we just don't know who the candidates should be for this position if we're you know, calling them out for hiring. And so a lot of people have you know, responded to that and pointed out, well, that's not good enough. You have to then expose yourself to a broader group of people. That's not on the people who want these jobs. It's on whoever the hiring managers are to do the extra work to find the people. And again, hashtag start with eight was a pretty straightforward solution to this. Let's get, you know, executives, people in the industry to commit to meet with eight women of color. And that was the extent of it, right? They just had to give their time to meet with these women. They didn't need to give them jobs. They didn't need to introduce them to other people. It was simply just meet with eight women of color in the industry, right? No, I I made it a little more than that. They had to do one substantive thing for Mm. eight women of color, right? So people have actually gotten hired, gotten managers, gotten their content distributed, gotten funded, all of that. All they needed was to get in the room. Now here's here is why it works. It it's the work that we did all along. So we as an organization started in February of 2018. I didn't mean to become the leader of a grassroots movement. All I did was I threw a party. And all those, and it was for all the women of color that I knew in the industry. And they could bring other women of color. 50 became 75, 150 women showed up. And because I am an action-oriented person, that's when we started the JTC list actually came before Women of Color Unite. So the very first thing was the database of women of color. So 93 women signed up on the spot. The only reason more didn't sign up was because uh, Teresa Jacina, who was our first uh, business development strategist, <laughs> Teresa's like, I want to eat. So uh, we let her eat. 93 women uh, signed up on the spot, came 250. So here, here is what, here are some things of why uh, we joined in on Start With It and actually turned it into a program. So a few things. First of all, that, that database is called the JTC list. It is named after my mother, Joan Teresa Curtis. And so uh, some of the best advice I ever got was from Marva Smaltz, Chief Diversity Officer of Viacom. Uh, she told me, come on, Gates, standing on your own two feet as a nonprofit. Don't get a fiscal sponsor. Come out. Now, what she didn't tell me was how much personal money that was going to cost me. <laughs> I'm just saying. But I am very glad that I did it. Right? Like, I'm really glad that we came out of the gate standing on our own two feet. And the, t- the group title, Women of Color Unite, that comes from the very first invitation that I sent out, said women of color, dot, 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 and then in all caps, unite. So that's where the name came from. That is why the database is still called the JTC list. That database now is over 4,500. Wow. 4,500. 
500. All of that from me just going, I think I want to get all the women of color I know together. Like I used my tax return. I borrowed my friend, the actor Kelly Perrine's beautiful house. Uh, like I just, it was just one of those things. And everybody, every vendor, everything, they were all women of color. The valets were women of color. Like I wanted it to, I wanted to celebrate being a woman of color, right? Like I wanted, I wanted to empower all of us. So what we ended up doing was, so when I started the group, the one thing that I didn't want to do was to charge women of color for anything. I really and truly believe that that is one of the way that, and I am going to say it, and I say it all the time, that a lot of the white female groups in Hollywood have kept women of color pushed to the margins. It's fees. It's the fees. It's the fees to join. It's the fees for every event. It's the fees. It's the fees. Now, here's the thing. I understand why people charge fees. Like, th they want to keep it going and the brick and mortar and paying people and so forth and so on. But I also understand the negative effects of it. So the one thing, we don't charge for anything. I don't vet because I don't believe in it. Everything we do is first come, first serve. So because of that the women do have to fill out forms those forms that they fill out when they join aha have given us the largest study of women of color in entertainment and mm. because of that, that statistical analysis that is what actually drives everything that we do and so the first time we did the study we had approximately 600 members uh, the last time that we announced them at TIFF, those are the ones that are on our website, um, are, um, we're 1,800. This year, it's going to be almost 5,000. So here's some interesting statistics, which comes back to why start with eight works. 33, I think it's 30, 30 to 33% of the women of color who we consider, we call our in-betweeners, meaning they have between three and 10 years of experience, are still waiting to get in the room. That, and I was like, oh, let's get them in the room. Mm -hmm. That is why it works. There is something else that happened. We basically built Women of Color Unite on the idea of that exclusion by familiarity and ending it. So we had, events we threw meet and greets i th we threw meet and greets with studios we would throw events because here's what happened and it happened at our very first event so we started in february of 2018 in may of 2018 i was working at austin this tv and they had just moved into a new building and they let me build it and i threw an event it was women of color unite and our allies so at that point we were about 250 members and something happened. People started getting hiring on the spot. And I went, that's it. That's it. That is why databases up until that point really don't work. Because databases, all of these databases with all of these, you know, the global majority yet marginalized are like phone books. For, I'm just going to say it, white people in the industry, right? They're like, that's great. It's a list because don't know any, don't didn't go to school with any of that. And I was like, ah, what you have to do is get them in the same room. Mm -hmm. 
Hmm. And instantaneously something happens. People are like, oh my God, they just want what we want. They just want the same things we want. One of the reasons why, and I blame a lot of the diversity, equity, inclusion programs in Hollywood. Why? Because you have otherized people. And when you otherize them, you dehumanize them. So let all of these programs, Disney, Warner Media, uh, Universe, all of them have been around some of these 30 and 40 years and the needle did not move. It didn't move. Why? Because you have otherized these people. Not only that, you've taken all of these marginalized people, women, veterans, people with disabilities, people of color, and made them fight for 25 spots. Most of these programs have 4,000, 5,000 people applying. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Okay. I have friends who've gone through all of those programs and still can't get a job still can't get hired because even with that, they'll still take, you know, a couple and maybe and kinda and sort of most of those programs until now, until last summer, a lot of those programs, they didn't get you a job, but you had to go through these programs to be what we also call quote unquote deemed worthy. I'm not playing this game because this entire game is built on white supremacy. A lot of this has to do with sitting at this idea of sitting at the table. I'm sorry, your table is corrupt. It was always corrupt. It has been corrupt because why? It is built on the backs of my ancestors and, and lays on the land of the indigenous. Your table is corrupt. I don't want a part of it. You can't make me want a part of it. So I'm over here and I'm building my own table, right? We're doing our own things on statistics. Now, here's the thing. I have members, I know people who want to see at that table and I'm going to fight for that because I can walk down the street and chew gum at the same time. <laughs> here's what I want. I'm going to invite you to my table and step up or step off. Step up and do what I ask or you can step off. People who are performative, I, and I get the feedback from my members. They're not asked back for this program. If they hit me up and ask them, I'm very honest. I'm like, you didn't do shit, hmm. but you want to take the credit for it. You want to say, oh, I did this program. No, you fucking didn't. I'm not going to let you get away with it. I'm not going to let you use us. Right? So why are we funded? Probably because of me and my big mouth. No, seriously. I mean, I think that, no, I think that there is, there's this almost quid pro quo. We'll donate to you. You just act like we're doing something. No, hmm. I want you to donate to us and I'm going to keep calling you out because I want you to do better because it's built on a lie. And we know this, right? We know this because studies have come up. You leave $10 billion on the table when it comes to African-American. Wait till it comes out about indigenous and studies about Latinx and studies about Asians, right? Let alone, we know our entire system, our entire economic system leaves one trillion on the table when it comes to the disability, disability community, right? So we know that this idea of meritocracy is a big fat lie. It is a lie, pure and simple. Pure and simple, it's a lie. And please don't talk to me because I have people who are like, 
you know, it's just nothing but affirmative action. Yeah, 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 yeah. But white women have been the recipients, the biggest recipients of affirmative action. So please don't, don't come to me about that, right? Like I, I understand politics. I understand my history. I understand the history of this country. Mm-hmm. So for me personally, we're trying to build something, something else, right? So we're almost done with the paperwork uh, of us being a nonprofit studio, meaning doing productions. The, the projects stay in, because we can't own it, stays in the ownership in the hands of women of color and other marginalized people, right? We built a, a partnership with the Casting Society of America. Do you know that we get free classes every week? We've been doing mm. it. Yeah, we've been doing it since June, July. Uh, that would be uh, Jasmine Michelle, our director of events, and our entire. Uh, we have a a casting a CSA committee of woke you members that work with the CSA. They're taught by various uh, casting society of America uh, America members. Thank you. Shout out to them. Uh, but they're based on two things. One, the business of acting. Because there is a secret language that people have that a lot of people who've been pushed to the margins don't have, right? That's number one. The other thing is that our members get to workshop things that stereotypically they would not ever get to do, right? So you could have a dark plus side gal who is wants to read for an ingenue, wants to workshop an ingenue. And here's why it works for the CSA members, because now they get to start picking that stuff out of their brain. Because dark-skinned women, per the Gina Davis Institute, dark-skinned women get uh, the stereotypic roles 33% more of the time, Hmm. right? So all of these things have ingrained, and here's why we work so hard. There's a direct correlation between content and studies from the National Institute of Health. So taking dark-skinned women, for instance, dark-skinned women suffer from depression more. They have uh, suicidal thoughts more. There's a direct correlation between the way society sees them and the way that they are viewed in context. So all of this, the, the reason I work so hard is because of that. I'm working really, it's really about the mental health of marginalized people have been pushed to the margin in, in our society. So, the, but there, there is this direct line. So those are the classes that we give and they're free. So it's 12 people. Um, they've been meeting every week for both classes. Um, and then 50 auditors of each class, right? So that's one of the things, not only that, we worked with the CSA to come up with what we call a non-white paper in which members of Casting Society have signed the pledge. It's on our website. You can go see all the people who have signed the pledge. You can download that paper and see. And when I talk to young women of color and and marginalized people specifically in this, I'm like, go look who signed it, go download it. So the next time you read something that they're, you're like, no, 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 you made this pledge, like hold people accountable because this industry has existed on two things, the lack of transparency and the lack of accountability. And those are the two things I am out to change specifically.
right? Which is why we have these partnerships with them. So that's one of the things we do. The studies that we do, we were the first ones to realize that <laughs> it's not a pipeline problem. It's what I call a hire my black ass problem. Only 10% of women of color who work in the entertainment industry belong to a union, a guild, or a trade organization. So that's a decent wage, healthcare, and what networking opportunities. And we all know that your network is your net worth. Now we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, and we will be right back. I'm James O'Brien, head of production at Custom, Digiday Media's in-house agency. In this podcast audio story, sponsored by Mountain, we're going to look at something slightly surprising about the television advertising landscape. That is, for some stakeholders, approaches to the evolving world of sight, sound, and motion are stuck in a kind of old-school rerun. In the old way of television advertising, there really wasn't a whole lot of information to go off of to really understand the effectiveness of your TV campaign. Uh, now with uh, connected television, um, you know, there's no need for Nielsen anymore. Uh, every platform can deliver way more information with way more precision than you ever than you ever had before. And again, this is another thing that we've been noticing that uh, brand marketers uh, they either are unaware of this new precision that's available to them, or because of old habits, they just don't care. That's Ali Ha'eri, Vice President of Marketing at Mountain. His teams are working to help reshape the conversation around TV for advertisers. And to his eye, there will always be a focus on brand awareness. But in 2021, brand awareness alone leaves out the smartest parts of the connected TV opportunity. So the brand awareness team typically is trained to just negotiate based off of CPM. Whatever the placement is for them, they're just from the outset obsessed with getting the cheapest price for the inventory that they're looking to get, which obviously makes makes a lot of sense. They, they wanna be as efficient with the budget that they're working with as, uh, as possible. And so the, the problem with that is that the inventory that's going to have the cheapest CPM is not going to be the same inventory that's actually going to deliver not just great results, but also get the messaging consistently in front of the most prized prospects for a brand. And so this is why we see that the performance team at a company tends to sort of get it, so to speak, because what they're doing is rather than worrying about uh, something like CPM at, at the front end of the process, they're thinking about the outcome of the process. The uh, performance marketers are thinking about return on ad spend or ROAS as a metric. And so when you're just thinking about, uh, you know, the, the return that you're going to get on the campaign rather than uh, negotiating on CPMs, then that changes the whole conversation. Still, old habits can be hard to switch off. Sometimes, in the world of TV advertising, success at new approaches requires a bit of persistence. Really, what helps is pulling the brand marketers in the direction of the performance marketers. It's, it's not that, you know, performance marketing is better than brand marketing, but really what's important is educating the brand marketers to, to, to really value data and, and measurability. It's all worth the effort, Ali said. When these previously distant elements come together in the TV space, pathways to both awareness and conversions appear. Brand marketing is still here to stay. Great stories, you're still gonna see them. Award-winning TV, TV commercial campaigns. None of that is changing. But now, in my opinion, the brand marketers are empowered. They're, they're smarter about their approach. 
and uh, and with connected television allowing users to to segment uh, and to to expect specific outcomes it's it's gonna it's gonna activate a new level of of creativity from brand marketers which is going to be pretty exciting I'm James O'Brien now back to the Digiday podcast and with that one like what are the the primary obstacles you found to being part of those unions because I know like I think correct me if I'm wrong a lot of times to be part of a guild you have to have a certain amount of credits or certain types of credits in order to be able to qualify to be in a guild is that right yeah it depends on which 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 guild or trade organization you were talking to but look I had a young uh she is a sound person it took her six years to get into a union normally it takes about two or three years part of the Part of the problem that I have realized in, in, in talking to IATSE Teamsters and so forth and so on um, is that a lot of the ways that you get in are antiquated. So there, first of all, you need a call sheet. Well, even though digital content has become the great equalizer, a lot of people don't do what? They don't do call sheets. They don't do your typical call sheet. So for anyone in the audience who isn't familiar with a call sheet, what is that? So a call sheet is the document that you send out that lets everybody know where, when, why, how, all of that, what scenes they're doing that week, everybody, and it's all of that. And there are, that that's, that is very, very specific. So you need these call sheets to get into the majority of the union. Except most people in digital just send out an email. Hey, this is the time we need to arrive and here's where you're going to arrive, right? So, and because of that, a lot of people who work in digital can't, can't get into the unions because they don't have those call sheets. There's also another thing, sometimes digital, depending upon what type of content it is, isn't accepted, even if you were to have a call sheet. So there are real reasons why people aren't in it. Because if you look at the studies from Annenberg, from USC, from San Diego State, right? A lot of them will say, for instance, I remember this statistic, producers, that only 1.2% of all producers were black women, okay? And everybody's like, oh my God, we have to make these programs stop, stop. Nah, it's because normally when they do their studies, they do them usually on the top 100, 200 films, what they all have in common their union. So what happened was when all of these studies go out, people are like, oh my God, it has to be a pipeline problem. We have to get people in. And that's why I'm like, no, it's not. It's a hire my black ass problem. It isn't a pipeline problem. We have 4,500 members climbing exponentially who are more than ready. They just haven't been able to what? Get in the door. And now we're back to start with eight. And that is why when I was tagged, we turned it into a program. Bitch Pack had an idea that woke you turned into a program. Why did we turn it into a program? Because of the fact it was really about the stats. I, I used the stat, well, <laughs> wasn't me. Let's just say woke you, because this is that entire team. Use the stats to help push it forward. Right. So and, and that, you know, interesting, that is how I got the partnership with the Casting Society of America. So one night I was up and they were talking about I'm drawing a blank. Uh, he played Finn in Star Wars, the black 
Uh, oh, John Boyega. Right. And he was protesting. And somebody said on Twitter, um, I hope this doesn't hurt his career. And Mike mm. Page, the casting, the casting director, uh, who I'm now actually working with on a project, and this is how it all happened. He said, um, no, I would hire him anytime. But then he went on to say, though we have to get, um, do programs to get more, you know, African-Americans and so forth and so on. And I was like, no, I mean, it's great if you want to do that program. I'm not saying don't do the program, but what I'm saying is that there are a ton of people already out there that you could hire. And I started dropping the stats, right? For our internal study. And he was like, oh, and I actually said, I know what you're doing. You're basing it on all of these studies that come out, but what do they all have in common? Their union. I said, why don't we do something while we help people get into the union, tell them how to get into the union. Hence, that's the business side classes that we now give. And then of course are the ones where people get to see other people. You know, my Latinx members can do more than be the fiery sexy Latina, right? Our Asian members can be more than be the smart girl who works in IT, right? The dark-skinned girl can actually conjugate the verb to be. Mm -hmm. All of those types of things. And that's how, that was the start of our relationship with the Casting Society of America. My mother was a statistician. And even as a statistician, what she would say is, stats only work in context. Mm -hmm. And that is what a lot of those studies were actually missing. And one of my biggest pet peeves, again, is asking the oppressor to help the oppressed. Come to me, come to the Chicana Directors Initiative, go to Jolie Proud to Native Media Strategies. These are all people who have been working in this space. We can tell you how to do it, right? I mean, I, and I don't mind talking because people know I talk about this all the time. The, the Producers Guild has come to me on, on more than one occasion to ask, how can we make our folks more diverse? And I said, one thing, cut your fees. They're like, what? I'm like, cut your fees. I said, because if white men make X amount of money and white women make X and, and Latinx and what, I was like, there is really, because again, that's one of the ways we've been pushed to the margin. You can't ask us to, to pay the same amount of money knowing what the intersectionality of racism and sexism has done. Like, mm -hmm. I, I just, I, I think that that's just asinine. And so every time, and every time they're like, yeah, we don't want to do that. I'm like, okay, and then I can't help you. Like, mm -hmm. I tell you what to do, right? And then uh, I was actually on a panel. I was actually at an event uh, and it was a, a Time's Up event. And, uh, and the producers go was talking about the fact that they got some of that Leslie Moonves money. And I called everybody because when the whole thing with Les Moonves, they had $20 million. Do you know none of it went to women of color, any women of color in entertainment? Oh, wow. None of it. Toronto Burke did get some, and they gave her a little bit more to find other organizations, but they weren't necessarily in entertainment. By the way, I actually went and tracked it down. And I was like, that was only 200 and some odd thousand dollars. 
And I was like, so nobody got in an entertainment because the producers girl was talking about, yes, we got $2 million and we're going to do this. And I was like, hold that thought. I said, so here's the thing. Do not sit up here and tell me you were a fucking ally. Because see, allies would have made sure that women of color run organizations got 20% of that money because we're 20% of the population. But what you would rather do is you have it and then act like you're doing something. I'm like, you are 92% white. Sit your ass down. Hmm. Like, sit, sit down. Like, why would an organization that's 92% white go, we're going to help people? Really? How about this? How about you figure out why and let somebody who's already doing that have that $2 million, right? That's, and that's what I'm talking about, performative. And I called them all. I, I called out, time's up, time's up, and you came in, the producers killed, free the work, which is, well, free the bid, which is now free the work. I called them all out. Because do not tell me that you are an ally. And you mentioned that with the mentors and making sure that they did something substantive. To, so, so what was it that you made them commit to? They had to do one substantive thing. And that substantive thing depended upon what they were willing to do, but they knew it going in, right? Again, performative behavior, not allowed. So they knew that they had to do one substantive thing. What is it that you're willing to do? And then we will match you with those who need that, that substantive thing that you're willing to do. So I'll give you a perfect for instance. When Rosenfeld, the president of Monkey Paw, he took part in the very first one. And when was like, okay, so here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna read eight scripts. He said, I'm only gonna meet with them for 15 minutes and it may take me months to get through this, right? But when they're done, they will have script notes from Monkey Paw. That means a lot to somebody to understand what people want in this industry, to understand what kind of things get greenlit, which you can tell when you get your script notes done. We said, great, we asked, matched him with eight. They knew going in, right? 15 minutes with him, he will read a script and give you script notes. You will not get them back right away. You may not get them for two or three or four months, but you will get them. Matched him with people who wanted that exact thing so we that that's the beauty of it first of all you can only take part if you're doing willing to do one substance thing for eight women of color i've had people are like yeah can i do it for four i'm like no i've had people how about two no six no (laughs) people hit us up on that all the time i want to help but and i'm like you help the way we tell you we need help, not what you're willing to do. And that is part of systemic racism, right? Mm-hmm. That, that's part of it, is the idea of, I'm just going to tell you what I'm going to do. And I'm like, mm, no, that's not how this is going to work. So they do. They have to give up time. Some people give up resources. Uh, some people give up a lot more. I'm really lucky because there are so many people who believe in our mission. There are so many people willing to donate so much time, so much energy, so much emotional energy to make sure that those numbers and those stats change, right? Like I'm the figurehead of it, 
but my staff, my board of directors, uh, our, our co-conspirators, that's why we're able to do what we do. And I, I, I'm a really big believer in, I, here's the thing, I, I have hope. Right. Like I will sit out, I will sit, I will curse out, you know, an executive, pick a studio, pick a production company. Like I will hold their feet to the fire. But the reason that I am able, even for me, to put out all of this emotional energy for everything that I believe in is hope. It's hope. Um, that's why I'm able to do what I do. And if you will give me a second but I'm going to uh, read you something from one of my members. And this is, her name is Diana Romero. Several years ago, I met Cheryl L. Bedford at a panel discussing disability in Hollywood. I had just transitioned into a wheelchair as MS took my mobility away in 2018. I didn't know what to do or where to go. Somehow I found out about the panel and my life changed. After many years of working in film production, I made the decision to turn to my dream of writing for TV and not leave Hollywood. Now fully immersed in disability advocacy in Hollywood, I've also made strides in my effort to become a TV writer. Fast forward to a few months ago, where I became one of the newest mentees of Hashtag Start With Eight. One of my two amazing mentors connected me with a TV writer showrunner for a general. We chatted for quite some time and next thing I knew, she was telling me that she was staffing a new show and would I be interested? Of course I was. So I sat down to meet with her and her co-showrunner which turned into an amazing meeting interview. Today, I started my new job as a writer's assistant for the new show, The 4400. I'm living proof that hashtag start with eight mentorship does work and it is essential to our careers, important for our souls and necessary for sisterhood. Without this, I wouldn't be where I am today. Thank you, Cheryl, for all you do. Thank you also to all those that work in this mentorship program. My heart is full and I promise I will make you all proud. So when people ask me, why do I do what I do? And why do I go so hard that? I think that's a beautiful note to end this on. So Cheryl, thank you so much for donating your time to come on the podcast. It was great talking with you. Uh, thank you for having me. I noticed you didn't say much and I pretty much ran my mouth. Thank you. <laughs> no, no, I, want, I wanted to give the floor over to you because you have a lot to say. And every time we've spoken, I think we've gone over an hour. This is probably our shortest conversation to date. So. <laughs> appreciate uh, you for having me uh, on behalf of the entire uh, Woku team. Uh, thank you, because uh, every time I talk about it, everything, it helps in some way, shape, and or form. Uh, the one thing I will tell people is uh, hold Hollywood's feet to the fire, make them donate to us. <laughs> All right, Cheryl, thanks again. Thank you. And thank you for listening to the Digiday Podcast. Please don't forget to share this episode with someone who you think would enjoy it. You can even rate us on Apple Podcasts if you like. And we'll be back next week with another episode.